Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast. Before we get to our guests, special shout out to Cruise Consulting. We do all your startup accounting, startup taxes, and tons of consulting work, kind of whatever comes up, like financial models, budget actuals, maybe some state registration, sales tax, VC, due diligence support, whatever comes up for your company, we're there for you. 750 clients strong now, $10 billion in capital raised by our clients. I can't believe it. $2 billion this year. It's been a crazy, awesome year. So check us out at cruiseconsulting.com. And now on to our guest. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise. Founders and friends, it's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm. Hey, welcome to the Founders and Friends podcast. I'm your host, Healy Jones, standing in for our cruise consulting COO, Scott Orn, who's taking a well-deserved vacation after the end of the tax filing season. I am joined by Michael Husby of DLA Piper. Michael is a well-known expert in venture capital legal matters, including fund formation and helping VECs and emerging managers set up their legal documents and raise their uh, venture capital funds. Michael, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Neely. Yeah, it's really, it's it's great to have you here. You know, would love to just have you explain to the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you got there. For sure. Yeah. So I'm a fund formation lawyer at a law firm called DLA Piper now. Uh, I started off at a firm called Latham & Watkins in Los Angeles, where I did all sorts of corporate lawyerings uh, like M&A, emerging companies work, tech transactions. After that, I took a year off and lived outside the U.S., mostly in Colombia and Belgium. And then after, after that, yeah, I uh, came back to the U.S., came back to the law, and now I do exclusively fund formation work. That seems like a really interesting place to to focus. Like, you know, what are what are some of the most interesting things uh, you think there are about working with managers as they're raising their venture capital funds? So for me, I, I just really enjoy talking to these venture capitalists. It's it's a lot of fun. You know, it's it's kind of like talking to founders. They have a lot of interesting things to say, a lot of interesting ideas about the world. It's you know, you start hearing about pretty crazy ideas like putting solar panels in space or data centers on the moon and all, all sorts. Of <laughs> that sounds like a pretty interesting fund. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool, and it's also you know we work with emerging managers a lot. That's uh, something that I really like doing, and it's always fun to you know counsel people and help them to get off the ground and, and start something new. It's always it's always fun to start fresh. Yeah, I, that's that's really cool, and I think that we are seeing a huge tidal wave of emerging managers. And just for the audience who, who may not be aware, an emerging manager is a term that refers to a new venture capital fund. So someone who has is not part of a larger, well-established fund. Everyone's heard of a lot of the longer-running funds on Sil in Silicon Valley, like Sequoia and Kleiner, um, and Jason, and people like that. But there are also a whole there's a whole new tidal wave of folks who are hanging up their own shingle and raising funds on their own. And that that's a really neat innovation that we're seeing. Within the cruise client base, we see a lot more of these smaller funds on the cap tables, particularly at like the seed or the pre-seed level, which are pretty, pretty cool parts of the cap table for a founder because you're raising your pre-seed or your seed. Those are the those are the investors who are really going out on a limb and supporting you when when you've got an idea. Michael, could you talk a little bit about kind of the difference between like a pre-seed fund, a seed fund, series A, sort of where someone plays in, in the cap table uh, and in the life cycle of a startup? 
Yeah, for sure. So a lot of the managers we work for are, are seed, which is essentially you know some of the earliest capital a startup might get. Uh, as far as you know, the venture capitalist side of this, it's often evaluating founders and their story and their idea. That's that's what they focus on mostly. You can get further towards you know Series A or also what we call growth equity, which is kind of Series B, Series C. Um, and then there, it's more, you know, there may have already been some investments in the company, uh, they might have revenue, whereas seed, maybe they don't. And from a venture capitalist point of view, the job, you know, you're still evaluating founders, but you also might be looking at financial statements and growth and seeing, you know, how that company has progressed. So from a venture capitalist point of view, it's, it's kind of two different jobs. Some people uh, are good at both, but often venture capitalists will focus on one or the other. Very cool. Very interesting. And one of the other things that uh, has happened that, that has enabled some of these newer funds to show up uh, and be successful at a smaller level is some changes to the legal frameworks that are allowed for different types of fund structures. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting because we do see $10 million, $20 million, $50 million funds, whereas a few years ago, you know, those were harder to market, harder to raise. What, what, what has changed from a legal perspective that has allowed these different funds to emerge and, and you know, want to talk a little bit around, in particular, I know there's been some changes around what's, what's allowable from a fund marketing perspective. I uh, would you know, love to understand what, what are those changes and what's, what's enabled that to happen? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two main things uh, that, are, that are connected, but both of them are contributing to this explosion that, that you're talking about. So one is um, the difference about how you can actually market the fund. So to take a step back to, you know, like lawyering day one, um, if, you're, if you have securities, you can't sell those securities unless you register them with the SEC. And that's like, you know, S1, it's, uh, you know, an IPO. Now, there are many, many, many exceptions to this rule. And so, you know, most companies don't actually do an IPO, um, a fund, when it's offering securities to investors, which are called limited partners, they have to deal with these laws too. So if a fund is going to offer their securities, uh, they're not going to do an IP over their fund usually. So they need to find an exemption so they don't have to do the full blown SEC registration. So traditionally, this means that you can only offer these fund securities to uh, in a private placement which means to people you already know. So the current law that encapsulates this is called 506B, and I just made this up for this podcast, and it's kind of stupid, but we can call it 506B quiet. And it's 506 quiet <laughs> because you can't talk about the fund. That's pithy, I like it. <laughs> so 506B, be quiet. You cannot talk about the fund. And this is traditionally how these funds have been raised. Now, you can't talk about the fund. And another thing is that most of your investors have to be accredited. And this, this term accredited investor gets thrown out a lot. It's something that's important in the securities laws. And accredited- And it's, it's something that startups need to care about as well. Certainly, yes, exactly. Uh, startups have to deal with all these same laws as well. And so an accredited investor, two, the two main ways that an investor can be accredited um, are they make $200,000 a year or $300,000 a year with their spouse, or they have $1 million of net worth, excluding the value of their primary residence. So those are the two main ways you can be accredited. 
And this is important because being accredited is kind of a big part of, of this explosion that, that we're talking about because in 506B is in be quiet. Like I said, um, you cannot talk publicly about your fund. Most of your investors have to be accredited, but you can have 35 non-accredited investors. And then finally, you don't actually have to verify whether your investors are accredited or not. So it makes it a bit easier for the person running the fund. Uh, yeah, you know, for sure. If you think, you know, if you think there's fraud afoot or something and they say like, you know, I'm not an accredited investor, but I'm saying I am, then you have a problem. But in general, you don't have to verify. Yeah. So let's just make sure um, we're, we're not providing accounting or legal advice in this podcast. No. So you should consult with uh, your attorney and your CPA when you are uh, raising funds for your startup or, or venture capital fund. But uh, but, you know, please, uh, please keep going here. This is uh, this is this is pretty cool. So and actually, I think we should interject. There's one the, the, in the theory behind the government yeah. forcing the investors to be accredited, uh, from my understanding, is that in theory, if you make a lot of money or have a lot of money, you are sophisticated enough to be less likely to get caught up in a scam. I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I and mean, we've definitely seen some pretty high profile you know, investment scams that have caught up some pretty rich people in endowments. But uh, but I believe that's the theory there. Is that is that is that your understanding? That, that is my understanding of the SEC's theory. And, you know, we can talk all day about whether that actually makes sense and whether just having a higher income means that you understand investments more. Um, but you know, that's a conversation for another day, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, Although it is it is nice in theory to help keep you sort of grandma from losing her retirement savings. But that's true. Uh, but... That's, true. <laughs> that's true. So so one of the things actually that has you know helped more people be able to invest in these in, in startups and funds and everything of that nature is that the SEC actually added some more ways that you can be an accredited investor. Uh, so one way is like if you're a securities professional, like you pass your Series 7 or something like that. Um, also, if, if you are part of the group that's issuing the securities, though so for a startup, if you're a founder or for a venture capital fund, if you're uh, you know, part of that management team of the venture capital fund, then you can be an accredited investor. So, so that helps. So that's that's one way that now you know more people have access to these private deals that previously they wouldn't. I feel like there's something else that's happened as well. Uh, if, if you're ever on Twitter, you do see people with large Twitter accounts suddenly announcing that they are raising a fund or they have a fund, and sometimes they even have little calls to action in there, which um, sort of my understanding, having worked for venture capital funds before, was a big big no no. What what is allowing for that? Like, how can you say on Twitter? I'm raising a fund, check it out. Like that's very different than what was possible 10 years ago, I think. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So uh, there's another option. Um, instead of 506 be quiet, we have another bad saying I've created, which is 506 C, which is see our fund. So okay. if I see our fund. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna be huge on TikTok with this, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so 506 C kind of changed the game. It, it put this middle ground between a traditional public offering like an IPO and this 506B, you know, hush, hush, you can only tell your friends. So 506C is this new thing a little, little under 10 years ago. And what this is, is it's still technically a private placement, but you can publicly solicit investors. So you can go on a podcast, you can take an advertisement out in a newspaper, you can message people on social media. You can do all these things to find investors. 
Yeah. Well, it's got to make fundraising a lot easier, uh, but I assume there's some sort of a catch associated with this uh, ability to make some noise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The catch is in everyone in your fund has to be accredited. So no 35 okay. investor limits. Uh, honestly, most of our funds uh, that, that we work with don't accept non-accredited investors anyways. So that's not that much, that much of a difference, at least from, from our perspective. The big difference is, remember before I said with 506B, you don't actually have to verify whether the investor is mm, right. In 506C, you have to take a, a reasonable effort to verify that every one of your investors is accredited. So how do you do that? Is it like a bank statement check or are there services that do this or is it the, the lawyers get to do this or, or how, do you, how do you figure this out? Yeah, so, so there's, a, there's a few ways that are actually written into the law they're like, if you do this, you're good. So okay. one, for example, like for example, the one that we do most often is we prepare a little letter and it says the investor gives this to their lawyer, their accountant, their CPA, their financial advisor, mm -hmm. those are the main ones. And they fill okay. out that document for the investor and they basically say, I verify that this person is an accredited investor and they sign it. Got it. Okay. And perfect. And if you do it that way, that's it. The thing is, you'd be surprised uh, at how much pushback investors give uh, with respect to this form. So, as in, as in, they don't want to sign it, or they don't want to have their lawyer look at it, or yeah. they don't look at it, stuff like that. So, so part okay. of what you just said, Healy, uh, you know, a few minutes ago, is that this is something very new. You know, it's it's a new way that investors are raising funds, and a lot of times, LPs, who which is another word for the investors in the fund. They'll be like, I've never seen anything like this before. Nobody's ever asked me to do this. And you know, some people just say, oh, yeah, I've done this. It's all good. But a lot of people, you know, it's just something they've never had to do before because they've always been in these 5 or 6B funds. So okay. they get a little bit of pushback. Well, I can, I can imagine if you're if you're kind of feeling like you're pretty well off and suddenly be asked to verify that, that you're uh... – rich or whatever could be annoying, particularly if you are at a large endowment yeah. or something where it's like, obviously you have, uh, <laughs> you have a lot of money to invest and you're accredited. So that, uh, kind of leads me to a question I've had for a long time that I've never had anyone to be able to answer this. So now I said, uh, so I'm going to ask okay. it, uh, an accredited investor has the, the income limits and the asset value, uh, or, or wealth limit. Um, or how does that impact if you're married? Does, does it double or is it just the same? So if, uh, if it's the income test then it, it, it ratchets up a little bit. Um, so if you're an individual, it's $200,000 uh, a year. Technically, it's $200,000 a year that you've made for the past two years with a reasonable okay. expectation that you'll keep making at least $200,000 a year. Okay. If you're married, that ratchets up to $300,000 a year. Okay. And then right. that, that $1 million limit for net worth, that, uh, that's the same if you're married. Uh, and just okay. a, a little aside on that is so it, there's kind of complicated rules about whether you can include your residence. You, you typically cannot include your primary residence, but you also don't include the debt on that primary residence unless like you're underwater and then you have to include the amount of debt you're underwater. Okay. It gets, gets a little, uh, <laughs> gets a little, a little complicated there. Okay. All right, cool. Well, thank you for answering that question that for some reason, that's been like one of those things that I wake up in the middle of the night wondering. So uh, now I know. <laughs> I think something that might be helpful for the audience, particularly a lot of the founders who don't necessarily get a chance to look behind the curtains of a venture capital fund is to, to define, you know, you threw a couple of terms around the LP and the GP, 
Like who, what, what is the LP? What is the GP? You know, what's the difference uh, between those two inside of like a venture capital fund? Yeah, for sure. Uh, a little fund vocabulary sounds like a good idea. So first you have the fund itself. So this is typically a, a Delaware limited partnership. Although sometimes you form this outside of the US for, you know, we can talk about that later if you want. Um, that sounds like a tax thing. It's, it's, <laughs> it's often a crypto thing now. There's okay. reasons. So you have the fund itself, then you have the investors in that fund. So they send their money to the fund and those investors are called limited partners. Limited because they have limited liability and limited because they have limited uh, ability to decide anything. So we have the fund, the limited partners invest in the fund. Then we have the people who run the fund and there's all sorts of names that people give to this person or people. Uh, you can call them the general partner, the sponsor, the manager. There's, it kind of depends on the specific structure, but the general partner, we'll call them, runs the fund. And sometimes you might have something else called the management company, but uh, I don't know if we want to get into it. We don't have to get that in deep, yeah. But I think but at a high level, there's the GP or the general partners. Those are the folks that are making investment decisions yes. and you know, pushing the buttons, keeping the fund running, and then the limited partners, that's the money. That's right. That's exactly right. And often, mo most of the time, the general partner will also uh, have a, a minimum amount that they invest to. It's, it's not like legally required, but it's a good marketing point to say, you know, like we're putting in 1%, 2%, 5% of the money. So, you know, our, inv our interests are aligned and we're all on the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Put a little skin in the game, right? Yeah. So are there any particular terms that the limited partners, the investors in the fund, ask the general partners for uh, when they're making an investment that would matter to the founders who are raising money from that venture capital fund or the portfolio companies of that fund? Okay, interesting. That would matter to the limited partner, or excuse me, to, to the founders. To the founders. Okay. Right. Well, so like, uh, stuff like life, lifetime of the fund or how capital calls work. I'm just yeah, so I, I don't know that, that, that there's that many terms that would uh, necessarily affect the founders themselves. One thing that is um, important to them is, you know, how much money does the fund have? Uh, how, how much capital they, do they have to deploy? Something else that's, that's something that, that might affect the founders is whether the fund plans to do follow-on investments. So this is something that's, that's quite common where, uh, you know, the fund in maybe in year two of the fund's life will make an investment uh, in a portfolio company with a startup. And then many funds will reserve amounts specifically to do later stage investments uh, in that same company. So maybe in year two, the fund invests in a series A. And then maybe a, a few years later, the fund reserves some money that specifically uh, they've retained to invest in that same portfolio company. So, so that's something that, that could affect the founders. Another thing which, which is pretty common and, and becoming more common, I would say, is uh, lots of investors, limited partners, uh, have a big list of stuff that they require if they invest in any fund. And you know, this can include all sorts of things, but one thing that directly very much impacts these startups is limited partners will often say, we're not going to invest in this, 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 and this, and they're called excluded okay. investments. And, you know, there are some that are like, you know, weapons, drugs, pornography, 
those are very common ones. Some other common right. ones are, um, you know, maybe we don't want to invest in digital assets. Maybe we don't want to invest in um, companies based outside the U.S. or maybe only a certain percentage of uh, companies based outside the U.S. So those those can all affect the founders. Hey, it's Scott Horner, Cruise Consulting, taking a quick pit stop to give some of the groups at Cruise a big shout out. First up is our tax team. Amazing. They can do your federal and state income tax returns, R&D tax credits, sales tax help, anything you need for state registrations. They do it all. And we're so grateful for all their awesome work. Also, our finance team is doing amazing work now. They build financial models, budget actuals, and help your company navigate the VC due diligence process. I guess our tax team does that too on the tax side, but the finance team is doing great work. And then, you know, I think everyone kind of knows our accounting team is pretty awesome, but want to give them a shout out too. Thanks. And back to the guest. That makes a lot of sense. And so actually we should back up just a second around the reserves because that is a, when I was at. Uh, when I was a venture capitalist, we did talk a lot about reserve management and how we use the reserves, particularly uh, for funds that were five or six years old, and also particularly for uh, as we went into a downturn. Uh, because particularly as you go into a downturn, there's a limited amount of money set aside to continue to support the existing investments. And uh, the VCs have a lot of math to do and to, to decide which portfolio companies are still going um, to stay in the lifeboat versus not. Um, and so, you know, what, what are the terms you commonly see about how much concentration a fund can have into an individual investment? Is that something that you see that's pretty common? Yep, very common, pretty much every fund. Mm -hmm. So typically how, how we do it is we, uh, it'll usually be somewhere about, about 10 to 20% of the fund's capital uh, can be invested in any single portfolio company. And the portfolio company is okay. another way for startup. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind about that is that's that's usually measured at cost. So if, if you measure, like if you invest 10% in portfolio company A and then 10Xs, it's not like you've gotten yourself into trouble. It's, it's, it's based on how much the investment was made at the time. And sometimes you could say, you know, this, this doesn't apply to follow on investments. You know, there's all sorts of different things you can do. Again, almost everything in these fund agreements is not a legal requirement. It's just a matter of, of, of business and, and, you know, negotiating between the LPs okay. and the GP. So another thing that I think is mysterious for a lot of founders is um, thinking about a lot of founders don't necessarily understand where the cash is that uh, a venture capitalist has when they say they have, you know, $200 million fund. Um, you know, I, 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 a, lot, a lot of folks might imagine that there's like a safe inside the venture capital's office where all this money sits. And, and it's not at all like that, right? There's closings, there's capital calls. Uh, do you want to explain sort of the mechanics of how the money gets from the limited partners, the investors to the, to the fund so that they can deploy it? Yeah, for sure. So typically how it works is the fund will hold an initial closing. And this is basically the first time that it accepts limited partners into the fund. And so what this is, is each limited partner at the closing has made a commitment to fund a certain amount of money to the fund. So, for example, we might have 10 limited partners who each make a commitment, that's the legal term commitment, uh, a $10 million commitment to the fund. So now the fund, okay. now it's a $100 million fund, 10 LPs, each has a $10 million commitment. Now, at this initial closing, it, it's possible that no money moves anywhere at all. You know, it's not like the closing of like an M&A deal or something like that. So, okay. 
you know, at that point, the venture capitalist knows, you know, I have a hundred million dollars of dry powder that I can invest in companies once I'm ready and once I find them. But in practice, you know, they don't actually, you know, call capital is what it's called. They don't, they don't actually say, hey, LP, send me your money until they find a deal that they want to invest in. So a common way that this will happen is, you know, after the first closing, maybe a month or two later, or maybe immediately if they already have a deal, the, the general partner will say, hey, limited partners, we found a deal. We're going to call 10% of the money you promised that you would fund over the life of the fund. So then in this case, you know, that would be $10 million. They get $10 million from the limited partners, and then they can invest that money. And they also use that money to pay you know, fund expenses and, and things of that nature too. And, and typically in, in most fund, in most venture capital funds, you can't, make new investments over the whole life of the fund. So a fund, a venture capital fund is typically about 10 years long, the last 10 years. But usually the general partner agrees, you know, we're only going to make investments, new investments in the first five years. So usually the, and if you're a limited partner, you can expect that most of your capital is going to be called in that first five years. Although oftentimes general partners will still make follow on investments on existing portfolio companies, uh, you know, throughout the life of the fund, if that's the deal. So, so just as the uh, venture capital fund has to think about managing their cash with the follow-on investments, the the limited partners have to think about managing their commitments to the fund. And then, if they have a big portfolio, there's probably a lot of uh, a lot of balancing and math that goes on there as well, just to figure out sort of which which funds are going to be asking for capital when. Et cetera, et cetera. Have you seen you know any best practices from the managers in terms of communicating when the capital calls might come? Because I can definitely imagine, you know, particularly at a moment when like the stock market's melting down a little bit, some of the some of the investors, uh, you know, may not have as much cash sitting around as they had uh, when they made the commitment last year. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's absolutely right. It's important for for general partners to to keep the LPs, the limited partners, in the loop about when they expect to call capital, because like you said. You know, many, you know, big limited partners who have a lot of money to manage, like pension funds or endowments or things of that nature, you know, they have, they have to manage their cash to make sure that they can fund these commitments when, when necessary. So you're right. It's, it's something that, you know, it's, it's, it's always good practice for the general partner to talk about their pipeline, you know, what they might be investing in and give advance notice. Um, we we're <laughs> right now we're dealing with an LP who wants to invest in a fund, but hasn't managed their cash especially well. And oh, no. so now we're trying to find out some creative way to, to you know, help them be able to make a new commitment to a new fund uh, because you know, they haven't been able to manage their cash effectively. So that's, uh, that actually reminds me of a time when I was, um, I was at, at Summit Partners, which is a, a, a well-known venture capital fund. And um, as the junior folks there, we got to invest in uh, in the uh, in the companies that, that Summit was investing in, and it was a great opportunity. Like you know, we weren't the technical accredited investor with the million dollars in assets. We were, you know, in our early twenties, and suddenly having access to these types of investments was amazing. And so there was a, there was a, a period of time where the, the investments were just coming like fast and furious. That maybe one or two a month, and uh, you know, it started to stretch some of our uh, <laughs> our limited resources. And I remember one of uh, one of my Coworkers was like just gotten um, those credit card checks in the mail. You know, it's like you can cash them, and uh, it was like a zero interest rate for six months or whatever. And he's like, maybe I should use one of yeah. these. And so we we sat him down and had a long conversation <laughs> about that. 
Yeah, I mean, liquidity is tough even for general partners in, in, in many cases. And there, there are certain ways that we can help the Remember earlier I said the general partner often invests in the fund too. But you know, if right. the general partner has a big commitment and they have, you know, a lot of these general partners, you know, they might be on fund two, three, four. They have a lot of, you know, a lot of hands in the pot here. So there are certain right. ways uh, that, that are a little complicated, but ways for the general partner to actually fund their commitment um, without mm -hmm. actually putting in any cash. Yeah, that, I've definitely heard about some of those that uh, seem like they're nice ways to maybe even uh, help you with your taxes. That's right, yeah, that's as well. But uh, let's not provide any, we're not providing any legal or tax oh, advice, but let's not, even, let's not go there on this call. Uh, but, but I think that there's another interesting topic here, which is sort of how VC funds get paid and people throw the term two and 20 around. Yeah. Uh, we want to just describe sort of in general what that means for uh, founders who might not be in the know. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so two and 20, like you said, is standard. And, and what that means is there's, there's two main ways that general partners get paid. So the first one is called a management fee. And the management fee is in venture capital, it's typically charged as a percentage of the commitments of the LPs. So in our $100 million fund, there's $100, excuse me, $100 million of commitments. The most typical fee, like you said, is 2%. So that's 2% a year times that $100 million commitment. So that's $2 million in management fees a year. So that's... Okay, so that, that over 10 years, that adds up to be quite a bit. Actually. Yes, well, yes. In, in, in venture, typically that fee steps down after that five-year investment period that we talked about. So often it'll be 2% okay. for the first five years, but then it might go down to 1.5 and then one and then 0.5. So mm -hmm. the idea here okay. is the management fee is to keep the lights on in a general partner. It's to make sure that you can pay mm -hmm. the salaries so those people can go out and, and find investments and, and do their work. So the, the, the theory is that, well, after you've made all the investments, your job's a little easier, you might not need so much management fee. Sure. I mean, I've also heard that uh, lawyers can be expensive too, so maybe- <laughs> There might be some legal fees there too. So one of the things that I always find interesting is that 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 would be a drag on returns, right? So how does that intersect with the money that the uh, fund hopefully will give back to the limited partners as they exit companies and, and sort of make make capital gains? We'll talk about the 20% in, in a second, or maybe you want to leave it in there. But, you know, that's not necessarily quote unquote free money, right? Like the 2% the you, you, it, it kind of impacts your hurdle. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I, I think we probably do have to get into the 20% for this to all make sense. Okay, um, let's go ahead go for it then. <laughs> so there's that management fee. And then the other way that the general partners get paid is what's called carried interest, which is often in the news. And carried interest essentially means a share of the fund's profits. So typically in a venture fund, this will be 20%. And you know, recently some people have been trying to get more. Uh, that's that's another trend, okay. but the way this works is it's a share of the profits. So what are the profits? Basically, if you sell an investment, let's say the LPs put in ten million dollars for an investment, and it's now worth twenty million dollars. So that's good. Right. The share of the profits basically means that all the money that that limited partners put in, like every dollar they've ever put in, has to be given back to them before the profit split goes up. So in your example, okay. you know, let's say it's a you know ten million dollar investment. It's now worth twenty million dollars. So the LPs get their ten million dollars back, but they also get back any management fees that they've paid, or really any other fees, lawyers' fees, any sort of fees 
the LPs have to get that money back before that profit split uh, gets sent out. So let's just say, you know, there's a $10 million investment. Let's pretend there have been $5 million of fees over the life of the fund. So now there's really only $5 million of profit left. And at that point, it can be split 80-20 between uh, the general partner who would get $1 million and the limited partners who would get $4 million. So kind of like you were talking about, there's an incentive to keep fees low because if fees are lower, then the general partner can get their profit split earlier. And that's good because the profit split, this carried interest for general partners, uh, as, as you <laughs> well know, is capital gains income, which is uh, better than management fees, which are ordinary. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of political wrangling around that, that uh, maybe is beyond the spoke, yeah. <laughs> scope of this podcast, but uh, there's, there's, so, there's <laughs> apparently some powerful uh, groups that like the carried interest uh, taxed as capital gains there. Um, well, Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, if anyone who wants to reach out to Michael can reach him at DLA Piper, Michael Hughesby. And additionally, Michael has a very cool website called investinglawyer.com. So if you're interested in VC legal issues, you should definitely check that out. Uh, thank you, Michael. Take care. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Oh.